So this evening I wanted to reflect further on the quality of kindliness or kindness we've been exploring today, but also want to reflect on another dimension of this quality that I would really refer to as a quality of fearless kindness. The Buddha firmly and very clearly placed kindness as being the foundation of the path of awakening. He placed kindness as being the foundation of interconnectedness, of a noble life, of harmonious communities, harmonious relationships. And he also spoke of kindness or metta as being the very reason for practice, the motivation that lies beneath all paths, all, pa all practices, suggesting that we sit, we walk, we breathe, we pay attention out of kindness, out of a genuine commitment to healing suffering, to healing alienation and conflict and distress. And this is traced, and this commitment, I think, is traced through all the different traditions found within Buddhism. And of course, it's, it's not that Buddhism has a copyright on this. I think you will find in all major religious paths or the major religious traditions this emphasis upon kindness, upon compassion. Shantideva, who is one of the great poets, I would say, of compassion, he said, he wrote this, these verses, he said, you know, may I be a protector for those who are without protection, a guide for travelers, and a boat and a bridge for those who wish to cross over. May I be a friend to those who have no friends. May I be a lamp for those who seek light. and a guide for all of those who are lost. The Dalai Lama once just very simply said, he said, my religion is kindness. Now when we think about kindness, we, we might remember all the moments when in our own lives, when our, our hearts have softened and we, we've reached out to another in distress, in, uh, to offer support, to offer care. And we might also remember the many moments of kindness that we have received from others, a supportive friend in a time of distress, a generosity we may have received in times of anxiety, care that we may have received in times when we felt desolate. So we have all known and I think all been shown kindness in our lives. Perhaps not as much as we would wish, but it's certainly not a stranger to any of us. And I think for, for many people, they, they often feel drawn to the, the kind of receptive, gentle face of kindness. And this is certainly part of the fabric of metta is a gentleness, a softness, an ease. But there's another face to kindness, and it's the face of fearlessness. 
And also bear in mind, when I spoke about the Brahma Viharas last night, I spoke about how much metta and compassion are interwoven with joy and with equanimity. Sometimes compassion is referred to as an outgoing kindness. And one of the manifestations of most, most familiar manifestations or, or images of compassion is actually found in this image here, this image of Kuan Yin. Um, it goes back through many centuries. And, you know, when you look at that image, it, it's a kind of a, it's a sort of an exemplification of this sort of receptive, very still, very gentle uh, compassion and kindness. But, of course, through time, Kuan Yin has often been represented very differently in the guise of an armed warrior, very committed not only to the healing of suffering, but equally committed to bringing about the end of the causes of suffering. I think it is, it is, there's a quality of courage within kindness that is necessary that allows us to be upright and present in the face of sorrow and pain when we might so easily crumble. And there's a quality of courage in, in kindness that allows us to, to meet the inevitable moments in our life when there is tension or conflict or loss, experiences that are part of every human life. I think there's a, a fearlessness in metta that actually rescues us from despair when we see the almost the endlessness and the bottomlessness of alienation and estrangement in our world. And it's that kind of courage that keeps us showing up to be present with a calm heart, a focused mind in the face of what at first seems impossible. I find this very much exemplified in the poem by Naomi Shihab Nye, which many of you will be familiar with, called Kindness. Before you know what kindness is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, 
and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. I think this poem speaks so eloquently, in fact, to the fearlessness of kindness that can really meet the desolation of loss, the fearlessness that can open to the thread of all sorrows, and also the fearlessness that really allows us to see ourselves in the eyes of a stranger, knowing that they live as we live, with hopes and plans, never knowing <coughs> when our world might crumble. The fearlessness that allows the heart to open instead of to defend and protect. And I think often beneath the complexity and, and I think the sophistication of the Buddha's teaching, there really lies this, this very simple teaching of kindness as a foundation of all things. And there's, there's research in the neuroscience world, really, that describes this quality of metta as being as essential to our well, the well-being of our heart as nutrition is to our body. And the Buddha taught metta as courage, the healer of fear. The healer of fear. Now, in the early days of, of the Buddha's teaching life, I think he really recognized that fear is one of the primary causes of sorrow and struggle, and that aversion is, part, is one of the offspring of fear. Ill will is actually an offspring of fear, as is resistance, as is judgment, as is despair. And fear, the bit identified, is, has a power to, to actually poison our hearts and relationships and in so many ways to leach joy from our lives. And fear is an isolating impulse, isn't it? It isolates us from the other that we fear. Fear, it creates anxiety, it disconnects us. It's a dissociative mechanism, actually, fear. In the, midst, in the presence of fear, we tend to dissociate from that which we are anxious about, whether it's our body, our thoughts, another person, the present moment. Its very nature is dissociation. And sometimes, we, in the presence of fear, we, we withdraw, we close down, we protect, or the other extreme, we become aggressive, assertive, demanding, insistent, domineering. I think in the early days of the Buddha's teaching, when he was teaching the pathways of metta, the cultivation of monks, of metta and the monks and nuns' practices, he, he sent a group of, of his community off into the jungle to, to practice. And it wasn't long before they came running out of the jungle to the Buddha, saying they couldn't practice there because the jungle was kind of infested with demons, afflictions. Now, whenever you hear these stories, by the way, please don't take them too literally. These are teaching stories. <laughs> 
And the, the, the demons were not literal or external. The demons that the monks and nuns were running from was the anxiety and the fear and the self-protection and the doubt that lived in their own hearts. And the Buddha knew this. And, you know, being the kind of teacher he was, he, he didn't offer, you know, consolation and reassurance saying, you know, oh, it's difficult, take a break, it's fine, you know, take a nap, go find somewhere nicer to practice. Instead, he, he talked about developing metta, the fearlessness of kindness that could conquer all demons. Now, when we sometimes, I think, hear these teaching stories, it's, it's very important that we don't romanticize them, but instead that we translate them into our own story and into our own experience. You know, and even to ask the question, you know, what are the demons that we flee from in our own lives? What are our demons of the moment? Um... It can be a long list. You know, we, we might find that we habit of, have the habit of fleeing from discomfort in our bodies and our minds. We, we might discover we have the habit of fleeing from difficult people and situations. Our demons might really live in, in our reactions to not getting what we want. Um, our demons may be our fear or how we react to feeling not in control. And to, to look at what happens when fear governs our heart, how we become more inclined to be fearful. It's like what we practice, we get good at. You know, and what we practice grows and deepens. And if we practice fear, uh, it tends to magnify. And we see that each time we kind of follow the mechanisms of, of fear, the mechanisms of dissociation, the mechanisms of abandonment, it's like our world becomes just a little bit smaller. Like each time there's abandonment, our, our sense of possibility and our sense of confidence really begins to shrink a little more each time. Now, the fearlessness of metta, I don't think it implies that fear doesn't arise. But it's deeply knowing it. It's the willingness to know the landscape of fear. And also to know that there is something perhaps more important than fear. Our sense of capacity, sense of vision, compassion, inner freedom, connectedness. And when we know this deeply, we, we perhaps also know that the, the fearlessness of metta is actually not going to be developed in the most idyllic, the most pleasant, the most undisturbed moments of our life. But that the fearlessness of matter is probably going to be developed in those moments actually where there is fear, where there is aversion. 
because these are the places where kindness disappears. I think metta and the fearlessness of metta really begins with opening and acknowledging all of those impulse moments of fear that arise in our hearts and to approach those moments with tenderness and to approach those moments with care and with kindliness instead of avoiding them, to be curious about them and and to begin to explore the, the kind of process of fear and the way that it only serves really to undermine confidence and freedom And I think part of the courage of metta is really about learning to stand still and to be somewhat steadfast in the face of fear, to to loosen the hold it has on on our hearts. (coughs) It's kind of a little bit like the monks and the nuns from the forest who are able to look the demons in in the eye with that fearless metta, only then did the demons begin begin to soften and to dissolve. Now in this teaching story, um, it's said that the demons, in the face of the boundless and immeasurable metta of the nuns and monks, vowed to serve the community for the rest of their days. And again, this is a teaching metaphor, by the way. The demons didn't disappear in the story, but the demons became the ground for the monks and the nuns to begin to understand the origins of fear and the way it can govern our lives, and also to understand the ways to find an unshakable heart, an unshakable freedom in the midst of fear. I don't know if you, many of you ever had this, but when I was a child, and I think it's quite a common childhood fear, you know, that there's something lurking underneath the bed. You know, I think a lot of children have this, you know, and they, they get sort of afraid to go to bed because they're pretty convinced there's a monster under there. You know, and I remember, you know, no matter how many times my parents would tell me this was nonsense, you know, and, you know, monsters didn't exist and it was all my imagination and I should please just go to bed. Um, none of their, either their reassurance or their instructions really helped very much. And I think it was only those moments when I could find the courage to look underneath the bed that, to tru- that I could truly understand that the monster actually was a creation, a construction of my own mind. Now, in, the, in Naomi, she had a nice poem. She says, before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing until you see the size of the cloth. And the Buddha really encouraged us to explore the landscape of fear and, and the different strands. And in fact, the Buddha talked about five primary strands or primary threads of fear that run through our lives. And the, the threads of fear that actually lead us to live in in anxious and defensive ways. 
And there's some debate about which of these first two actually tops the bill. Um, the fear of death or the fear of public speaking. The, the, some debate between which of those is more primary than the other. Um, Harvard University is convinced it's a fear of public speaking is more scary to us than dying. Um, I'm not sure that's true for everyone, but I will actually talk about why that is. So, the fear of death, the fear of public speaking, the loss of reputation, the fear of losing our self-image, the fear of not having enough, and the fear of unusual mind states and emotions. And as I said, to cover the kind of major fear that we experience. And so I want to just look at these a little bit carefully. Going back to the second verse of this poem. Before you know the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. It speaks to the truth, the inevitable reality of death. It's not just something that happens to others, by the way. Stephen Levine did a lot of work with the dying, once ran a workshop with people who weren't dying and asked the question, who in this room is going to die? It was really a long time for anybody to raise their hands. We imagine this is something that happens to other people. And yet it's part of this human story, isn't it? It's part of the universal story and something that is greatly feared. We actually, it is part, death is part of the story of those we love and care for, and not just those we love and care for, but the very many small endings and deaths that run through our lives. In reality, if we look at anything we have, anything we treasure, anything we depend on, anything we crave, anything we call our own, it's as if it appears with the message, let go. Mary Oliver, part of a poem she wrote, she said, to live in this world, you must be able to do three things, to love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. This, uh, this is an area, you know, conceptually, of course, we recognize this intellectually, we know this. And yet this is one of those areas of dissonance we kind of spoke a little bit about this afternoon. We see how much endeavor, how much heroic effort goes in to trying to arrange the world to avoid this message the grand plans we construct, the projects, the endeavors we make to arrange the world in a way that we feel protected, the things that we surround ourselves with, the sense of having a tomorrow 
is so actually deeply important to us. And being safe, being safe, I think, at many times, is felt to be more important than being free. And yet, when we look at it, really, do any of our plans, any of our defenses, any of our holding, actually make us feel more safe? Only if we're unwilling to look at the illusion of safety more closely. There is something very liberating, I think something very compassionate, and something very courageous in embracing the, the vulnerability and the very fragile nature of our lives. To have that willingness to feel our future dissolve in a moment. When we have that willingness to embrace the fragile nature of our lives, I don't think in reality it makes us feel more anxious or more unsafe. But perhaps it's the moment actually when we can really begin to live the lives we long to live, a life that is, is actually aligned with the way things are. And sometimes I think in embracing our mortality, I, th I feel it's, it's an important step in beginning to come out of this cocoon of, of, of self-protection this cocoon of self-defensiveness that can be so isolating and so estranging, this cocoon of, of self-protection where we see the world in, in, in the light of I and you and me and the world. And, and perhaps in coming out of that cocoon to, to truly begin to get a sense of our, our interconnectedness It's, fear destroys that knowing of interconnectedness because it is so isolating. But that, it's that knowing of our interconnectedness, really, that it's the mother of all kindness. And the, 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 embracing mortality is a very practical path. I think it's not some grand idea it's, it's about really being, beginning to notice all the small endings in our day. The sound, the breath, the sunset, the end of all experiences of lunch, of tea, of a thought, of the lovely, of the unlovely. And it's almost a way of beginning to put down our argument that says, you know, this shouldn't be happening. This shouldn't be happening. Learning to be upright, learning to be poised, beginning to taste the freedom of not being so bound by the world of conditions, no, not so afraid of loss. And, you know, I often think, and one of my teachers actually said this to me very directly, that everything we do on our cushion, everything we do on our walking path, in a way, it's a lesson of learning how to die. And it's also a lesson of learning grace. It's a, learn a lesson of learning balance. It's also a lesson of learning how to live. We can ride and ride, staring out the window, thinking the bus will never stop. Or we can wake up knowing something there is more important than fear.
that there is freedom and kindness. And the poem says, we can look at the person lying dead by the side of the road, and we know this could be you, this could be me. And then we know that it's only kindness that makes sense anymore. The second of the fears that is often spoken of, this fear of public speaking. <coughs> I think when I first heard this, I felt quite bemused. I thought, what is this doing on the list, really? In, um, but then when I thought about it, I realized what it was doing on the list. I mean, if you could just imagine for yourself if, if I just, you know, shouted out and said, you know, Oh, John, I, you know, my throat's sore. Would you mind coming up here and finishing the Dharma talk? Um, I, I mean, if you could imagine how that would be for you. You know, um, you know, would it just be something easeful? And yeah, sure, yeah, just go right ahead. You know, would you kind of like hide under your blanket? Or um, would it be an entirely neutral experience? Or would it get surrounded by the kind of anxiety of me? You know, I'm going to make a fool of myself, you know. You know, what have I got to say? I can't possibly do that. Or you might be the kind of person I have also come across, you know, seizing the microphone with gusto and thinking, you know, it's finally my opportunity to present my excellence to the world. Hmm? How often, you know, the fear of public speaking is a kind of metaphor for our fear of being visible. Okay, that's what it's a metaphor for. And we imagine in our minds that somehow being visible is, is a threat. It, it's a kind of a, the potentiality of a death of self. That the visibility seems to be, you know, a, a kind of a doorway in our mind to being criticized, being judged, being blamed, being belittled in some way. And how often in that, almost that fear of unworthiness, or, you know, that, that sense of unworthiness, uh, we take up a cloak, almost, of invisibility, always imagining the judgment, the, the disapproval that might come our way. If we were to step forward, if we were to be visible, when we think about the people that we most deeply admire in this world. They, we admire them because there's, they have that courage, don't they, to be visible, to speak what is true for them, to say no to what is untrue. One of the greatest examples of this for me was a monk I, I knew a little called uh, Gosananda, and he was um, a monk from Cambodia who had lost all of his family under the Khmer Rouge. Um, and after the Khmer Rouge were over, he went back to Cambodia and, and he opened up a Buddhist temple in a barren refugee camp. Um, there were 50,000 villagers 
who had become communists at gunpoint and now had fled the destruction to camps on the Thai border. But the Khmer Rouge didn't really just disappear like that. They went underground. And in this camp, the Khmer Rouge camp leaders threatened to kill anyone who would go to the temple. Yet on its opening day, more than 20,000 people crowded into the dusty square for the ceremony. These were the sad remnants of families, an uncle with two nieces, a mother with only one of three children. The schools had been burned, the villages destroyed, and nearly in every, every family, members had been killed or ripped away. I wondered what he could say to people who had suffered so much. And Mahagosananda began the service with the traditional chants that had permeated village life for a thousand years, though these words had been silenced for eight years of war and the temples destroyed. And Mahagosananda began to chant, first in Pali and then in Cambodian, the traditional words of Metta, that hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is an ancient and eternal law. And as he chanted these verses over and over, thousands began to chant with him. They chanted and wept. It was an amazing moment, for it was clear that their hearts begged for this, longed for this forgiveness like a parched desert. And it was clear that the presence of this monk and the truths he chanted were even greater than the sorrows they had to bear. I think that it is, we see these inspirations, we see these examples, and we think this could not be us. But actually, this path is teaching us as almost to reclaim that kind of courage, that willingness to be upright in the face of fear and to say this could be us, this can be us. That there's something more important, more valuable than the, the illusory protection and safety of invisibility. I mean, think of, you know, if you have a tendency towards invisibility, to, to being quiet when perhaps you should speak, to hiding out of fear of judgment. It's, it's not as if... It's not as if those actions kind of stop the judgment, do they? We just do it to ourselves. We just do it to ourselves. Our hearts and minds churn sometimes with all that we have not spoken. Of course there are at times fears of being visible, and kindness knows this, and yet is not willing to consent to be governed. The third of the fears is the, the fear of loss of reputation. It's put it's a kind of an awkward way. But it's a sort of the fear of losing our sense of identity. Most of us love praise far more than we love blame. We want to be seen. We hope we can be seen as being worthy or lovable, worthy of admiration kindness, compassion. We want to be seen as a kind of person that can be loved and respected. And we don't want to be exposed to blame and rejection and judgment. And, and we see how when we are exposed to blame and rejection and judgment, 
how it powerfully ev evokes the, the kind of anxiety of me, how easily we buy into, <laughs> buy into it, that I'm not the kind of person who is lovable. How easily we buy into the judgments or the criticisms of others and even of ourselves directed towards ourselves. That I'm not the kind of person who is lovable. We feel so deeply injured when our intentions are misinterpreted or we're on the receiving end of harshness and criticism. And it raises, I think, this very deep fear of being no one, of somehow being erased and being annihilated. And our reaction is often either to strike back in anger or to crumble inwardly in a kind of storm of self-recrimination, of doubt. This is the nature of the anxiety of me, is to, to magnify the sense of self and simultaneously to magnify the sense of other. I think this teaching is uh, always asking us to question what it is that we are protecting or asserting. And it's often an image. It's who I believe myself to be, how I want to be seen. And when we look at it, we see how much agitated behavior that gets generated to protect me it doesn't seem to calm the fear, it only seems to magnify it. Excuse me. I think it's a really big question for us of what is kindness in the face of hostility? What is kindness in the face of, of harshness? I don't think any of us find it too difficult to feel a lot of kindness to little puppies and small babies and friends in need. But it's pretty difficult for us to find the courage of kindness in the face of the difficult. But this is what Metta is really concerned with. Shantideva had a pretty high bar, by the way. He says, if a person disparages insult and insults you, place them as you would your teacher with respect on the crown of your head. <laughs> Imagine that one. <laughs> Even if a person you have cared for regards you like an enemy, cherish them specially, like a mother does her child who is stricken by sickness. On to say, unruly beings are like space. There's not enough time to overcome them. Overcoming these angry thoughts is like defeating all our enemies. How much we accept the fact that we really can't control what other people do with their minds. We can't even control what we do with our own minds. Now, would we imagine that we can control what other people are going to do with their minds? That they're not going to have critical thoughts about us, or they're not going to have judgmental thoughts about us. We can't even control what happens in our own minds. 
But I think the, the, the real fearlessness of kindness, it's a kind of commitment. I think it's a kind of commitment to not participate in aversion and ill will. It doesn't mean not practicing my speech, wise communication, but I think it's a commitment to not participate in an aversion and ill will. That's a really challenging practice. Not participating in the in aversion in the face of another's aversion. Not participating in our own aversion. It's a real training. It's such a big ask. And yet it's continually suggested this is indeed possible for us. In the Metta Sutta, the Buddha says, abide in a way in which we pervade the whole world with kindness, unconditionally, free of hatred and ill will. In the Bodhisattva training, the training of compassion, it's suggested wherever, whenever my eyes so much as look at another, may my regard be full of honesty and of friendliness. The next of the fears is the fear of insufficiency, deprivation, the fear of not having enough, the fear of discomfort, the fear of the innumerable unpleasant sights and sounds and tastes and events of the world somehow invading our space. It's difficult to even be mindful of the unpleasant, never mind to accommodate all of this. And we think about how the impulse of aversion, of course, is to avoid. Avoidance is a practice of fear. We can avoid a lot of things. Um, we can spend our whole day actually avoiding things. Trying to protect ourselves from injury. And yet, there's not enough mechanisms or equipment in the world to armor us against a world of conditions we cannot control. There's not enough mechanisms in the world to armor us, protect us from loss or pain or sorrow. And the practice of fear and avoidance is actually the polar opposite of the practice of metta and compassion. It's hard to open our eyes and to open our hearts to embracing the difficult and, and the challenging but it's really hard also not to. To turn away constantly is deepening our tendency towards intolerance. To learn to turn towards deepens our capacity for tolerance. The last of the fears is the Buddha lists, is, is again a kind of a strange one. The fear of unusual mind states or emotions. Now, actually, you've been sitting with your mind today, and you might have already come to feel that you have an awful lot of unusual mind states and emotions. And what's unusual about them is that mostly they come unbidden. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that today? You know, like, like you don't come into a sitting and think, oh, I think I have a really uh, doubt-filled sitting. 
you know. Or I think I think I'll do do a big dull one this time, you know. Or or yeah, you know, you don't go into your walk and think a fantastic time in the day to be depressed, you know. Or you know, walk you come sit. Oh, great time to be really angry. You notice most of our mind states come unbidden. That's kind of scary, don't you think? I, I but I find that really really startling. You know, how little, actually, we are in control of our mind states and thoughts. Hmm? I find that quite, quite startling, which is no wonder we fall asleep so much. We just don't want to know this. Hmm? So we're, we're just numb out, you know, because that seems preferable to having these unusual thoughts that seem to come out of nowhere, or these unwelcome and unchosen mind states. Um, and I think that the most extreme form of this fear of unusual mind states is actually the fear actually of losing it altogether. You know, the fear of just kind of losing our mind. What we don't always recognize is that fear is also a mind state. Fear is a state of mind. And it may well be the deep primary default mechanism of a sense of self. And endeavoring, I think, to control rather than to understand the mind, these are two very different pathways. To control the mind and to understand the mind are two entirely different pathways. To try to control the mind, usually what we do is we push away, we avoid, and we easily forget that our minds, our hearts, are as deserving of kindness as anything else in this world. And we learn to open to many of these kind of chaotic thoughts, these unbidden mind states, with the compassion, the kindness we would bring to anything. In the Metta Sutta, the Buddha suggests developing the kindness, the fearless kindness of a mother as she protects her child, her only child. We need to learn how to protect our own minds, how to guard our own minds. And I think the greatest protection of our minds is actually metta, this capacity to befriend, the capacity to include, the capacity to be close to, to be intimate with all things is so much part of metta to approach rather than to avoid, to include rather than to reject. We learn to be upright in the face of all things. And it's very much as Naomi Shihamnai says in the last verse of her poem, then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Thank you for your attention. If we have just a couple of moments quietly together and then... We'll have a walking period. <coughs>
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.